What is Drinks with Tony? Conversations with authors, mostly. Storytellers, always. And isn't every conversation a story unto itself? Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hi, this is Janet Fitch, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show, yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Janet Fitch. She is the author of White Oleander, Paint It Black, The Revolution of Marina M., and her latest novel, the follow-up to The Revolution of Marina M., Chimes of a Lost Cathedral. Janet, hi. Hey, Tony. It's so much fun to have you back on the show. And we were just talking that it's been, has it been 12 years since you were on Drinks with Tony? It's been 12 years. It was the punk rock novel that you thought, oh my God, punk rock. So we met in San Francisco and uh, yeah, 12 years ago. I remember you had, I think you had the salmon wrap because we were at that joint that had the amazing salmon wraps. And um, I was like, you have to get this. I, 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 that's just one of the things I remember. Wow. Well, yeah. something about wrapping, wrapping your head around the salmon. You know? <laughs> but I didn't, did you grow up in Los Angeles? Yeah, I grew up in L.A. in an area that was, used to be called Midtown and is now Koreatown. And so I grew up there and, uh, until I left at 17 to go to college up in Oregon. And L.A. is like, you know, it's like the floor of the, of the old apartment that every, all the marbles slide to one, en- one end of the room. I always end up in L.A. And wherever I go, I always end up here. So at some point, I just embraced it, you know. I, I love L.A. I've been here almost six years, and it's just coming from San Francisco, I didn't know how cool, LA, I mean, not how cool L.A. was. I knew L.A. was cool, but I didn't know how it's really down to earth and there's just an amazing, amazing people that you just don't, you, you don't hang out on the Santa Monica promenade. There's so much more than that. Yeah, I think what happens, L.A. is such a big place yeah. and people, what you see in the movies, what you see on TV tends to be the beach a freeway, a riot, and Disneyland, you know? So if you get out of that, you know, out of that head, you get you get off of the beach, you get away from the west side, you come into town, there's a whole world here. It's a huge city, so everything that you're interested in is going to be here. I, we, My family was in Spain, and my daughter was watching a capoeira uh, exhibition and she said I would love to do that when she was in high school and it's like you know what we live in LA I bet you can find capoeira yeah. in LA um, my mother who grew up here um, said you know she would never want to travel I would could never get her to leave town um, she said why would I leave town you know I can go to Ethiopia I can eat Ethiopian food I can shop in Ethiopian stores and come home and sleep in my own bed you know <laughs> why go anywhere else so I think that that is not the picture that the culture has of Los Angeles um, and I think people who move here especially from like super concentrated hipness like yeah. like San Francisco are just amazed at the, I mean, the real diversity of um, cultures and family, you know, families live here and real life lives here and there's just everything going on. But it's a complex place that it takes time to unfold. It's not going to be, if people stay at their sister's house out in Canoga Park and they go out their front door, there's not going to be much happening. Right because they're 22 miles from anything happening when they expect it. Whereas if they stayed, you know, in distant suburbs in other places, they wouldn't necessarily see the Guggenheim when they walked out the front door. Yeah. And, and you were around when the L.A. punk rock scene was happening that I was looking up. I was looking afar from my dreary suburb of Millbrae in San Francisco, and all I knew was these L.A. bands, and I was like, wow, 
what what's going on down there? I wish I wish I was down there because I, I didn't even know there was stuff happening in San Francisco because that was 15 minutes away from me. But, but were you were you around that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was here. I was a little older okay. than most. You know, most people. I was already in my. Um, probably mid to late 20s oh, okay. I was already working I was already you know um, I wasn't living in some of the famous punk flop houses and but I would go to the shows and uh, um, it was the time where I was becoming a writer so I'm very attached to the punk era just because that whole feel, feeling of freedom and just make a mark, just make a mark, just do something. You don't need the good housekeeping seal of approval um, was really instrumental because I'm very, I tend to the perfectionistic. And so to have come of age as a writer in the punk era gave me that, that dose of permission that I think enabled me to become a writer. That makes, yeah, that makes so much sense. That's like when I was working on my uh, Cherry Bleeds, which was that online literary thing I did for 10 years. Well, nine years too long, but. <laughs> it, it's also, you know, one of the writers that gave me permission to write was Miller, Henry Miller, because he lets the seams show. You know, he's a little more punk, punk rock than, say, Henry James. Uh, it's very forbidding, but reading Miller, it's like, wow, you can do this? Yeah. You can do this? And I've still got the perfectionistic thing, but but less so than I would have if I had come of age at a different time. Yeah. Wait, and so you, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? What, what was, what, I mean, how young were you or how old were you or how middle were you, I guess? That was the weirdest question. How young were you or how old were you? Either way, it's an age. That's right. I was 21. I was 21. I had tried to write when I was a kid, and uh, it was sort of a, you know, it was, uh, I I had a teacher, nobody, my teachers did not like me, and I did not know why, had no idea. Uh, Do you think it's because you were good? (laughs) I think it was because I was kind of a demanding person. I I wanted a lot of attention and they were trying to teach a class of 45 kids in the LAUSD and I was just a pain in the butt as far as most of them were concerned. And I had this one teacher who was sort of a, I I didn't know this at the time, but I was sort of, she was sort of a slow talker and I tended to complete her sentences. I realize that now, but it never occurred to me why she hated me. But I wrote a story to show her that there was something to like about me. And she took a red marker and she gave it a good going over and gave it back to me. And I didn't write again until I was 21. Wow. Now, so after that, what is it when you're 21 that goes, wait a second, fuck that red marker. I need to get in this shit. I was on a student exchange uh, living in England, so I got away from sort of the hothouse atmosphere of my own univer- of my own college, which was really intense. I thought I was going to become an historian, and I was just hell-bent on that path. And then getting away from it for a year and realizing there was a whole big, beautiful world out there, um, I woke up on the night of my 21st birthday, bolt upright in the middle of the night, and realized that I wanted to be a writer. Wow. I, I mean, this sounds like a complete fabrication, but that is what happened. And I wanted to be a writer like Anais Nin, you know, not a writer like Emily Dixonson, you know. I wanted to be glamorous and have this big life and have adventures and make love with interesting men yeah. and just, um, and express myself and, and, uh, boy but it came like it just came down like a sandbag on my head so you were you were reading uh you, and you pronounce it right i always say and, and i i always screw up on anias nin yeah yeah but you were reading her and you were reading henry miller before this and then and then the epiphany happened oh yeah i was reading i've always been a you know a just ravenous reader so i had read miller in in this period, I, you know, read Nin starting in high school. Um, 
they were part of my world for sure. But I was just reading everything and I was doing Russian studies so I was reading a lot of the Russian authors and uh, my boyfriend at the time was a super reader. We we were like that beat, beatnik couple, you know, sitting on the mattress on the floor, each of us with our book, you know, and our cigarettes and, and uh, I mean, um, completely in that world. I remember I was reading Under the Volcano. He was reading Straight as the Gate by Gide. Um, that, and then that was when I woke up and just had that vision. So then you have the vision. What do you do after that vision? The next day, are you writing? Are you, are you looking for uh, mentors? What, where do you go from, uh, from bolting awake and going, oh shit, I'm a writer? Uh, well, first I had to extract myself from my career path of becoming an historian. Okay. So I was still, I was in Russian studies uh, at that, in that English program. Uh, England in the program in England um, so I had to finish my coursework I had to, I was traveling a lot I was reading a lot uh, I went to Russia and was a student there uh, I had to come back and finish my senior thesis uh, in college which was in history uh, so it was more thinking about writing and having ideas for novels, ideas for stories, which, as we know, is not the same as writing. But a lot of fantasy going on, a lot of daydreaming, uh, a lot of ideas, like half-baked stories that dwindle out. Uh, I took a creative writing class in college, uh, my last year in college, uh, which was mostly poets. There were only three fiction writers, and we were the proletariat, you know, the, the poets were there were like 18 poets and three fiction writers and um, the teacher just let it be a free-for-all he was a poet and didn't really wasn't su super invested in what was going on so just writing my first tiny short stories and um, getting reading taking all the wrong advice and uh -huh. reading you know how-to books and and uh, just starting to hack my own way through. And I graduated from college. I did not go on to graduate school in history. Um, got a job as a proofreader at a type shop, became a typesetter, and just started writing my short stories and grabbing information wherever I could. That's so much fun. So um, now when you talk about your you and your boyfriend smoking cigarettes and uh, reading books in bed, I just assume that that's you and Andrew now, but uh, just in a different time and less cigarettes. Is that yeah, no cigarettes. Oh, I'm uh, uh, my husband, uh, longtime boyfriend, is a, is a tremendous reader. You know, he'll get through a book every two or three days. He, yeah. He's like... Um, you know, he's read Infinite Jest three times. Really? Yeah, he loves that book. Because oh, uh, I hate that book. I have, I've only gotten through the first 200 pages twice. I need to talk to him about yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, he loves that book. Um, he, he's a comedy writer. He even has a joke that he wrote that's included in the in Infinite Jest. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, did he know David Foster Wallace then? Oh. He got it, uh, Foster Wallace got it off The Tonight Show. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah. let, let's, let's just let the listeners know that Andrew used to work on, uh, wrote jokes for Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. Yeah, he was one of the head writers on, on The Carson Show. So he's very funny, but he's, he's just, um, you know, he's omnivorous in his reading, much more than I am. And, but I've never seen anybody move through books like he does. So it's wonderful. We really are the... The, that is our life, is just tap, 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 writing, and then lying on the couch reading books. <laughs> I, I had this vision when I was about 22, and I was like, you know, thinking, oh, I might be a writer. And then in my head, you know, I was, I was still in that weird-ass belief system, but at the same time, I was like, I want to be a novelist and just writing and reading every day in Paris. So for some reason, I had Paris in my head. It just turned out it's Los Angeles, but I am reading and writing every day. And I fulfilled my dream. It's just geographically. Um, I feel like I'd rather be in Los Angeles than Paris, even though Paris is a beautiful city. But. Yeah, I fulfilled my idea 
of, of uh, I actually live on the same hill that Anais Nin lived on when she was in LA oh, cool. with the second husband, uh, yeah. Rupert Pohl. I met him, I've seen the house. I mean, she's still a huge uh, influence on me. Um, yeah, and, and all I do, I read, I write, I travel, I think a lot, I have interesting conversations. I used to feel like I was circling the outer planets. I was so far from, when I was a young typesetter, I was circling just out there in, in deep space, nothing. And where I wanted to be was so far from where I was. And then as the, you know, as I worked and, you know, become more the writer that I wanted to be, you know, I feel myself moving in closer and closer to wherever home would be for a writer. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't work for jerks anymore. I don't, you know, it's, it's a blessing, you know, it doesn't have, it didn't have to turn out that way. You know, this is damn sure. So I'm very grateful to be where I'm at. And I didn't know that you went to school for Russian studies. That makes so much sense on your last two books. Because uh, th there was a time you came to San Francisco, and I believe it was probably like 2000. I'm, I'm remembering this because of the lady that I was with at the time, and it was post-divorce. But I think it was around 2009, 2010, you brought a Russian poet to uh, the Mission District. And um, do you remember that? Oh, and th that was such a fantastic night. Yeah. Yeah. The, it was a, a, there's a poet named Dmitry Golyinko, who's a fabulous poet. Uh, uh, Russian poet. He's from St. Petersburg, and I think he's in Berlin now. Um, and a friend of mine, uh, a tr his translator, was teaching at UC uh, Santa Cruz, and she and some other and another translator had brought him. Uh, he had a U.S. tour, and he was doing Santa Cruz, Berkeley, San Francisco, Palo Alto, Stanford, and. He, she had been with him solid for a week, and this Dimitri was somebody who got very little sleep and was just super active all the time, wanted to do stuff all the time. Just, And she called me up and she said, Janet, can you come and help me with Dimitri? Because I'm exhausted. So I came up and took him around in, in Santa Cruz, and I was there trying to get him to his event at UC Santa Cruz. But he wanted to have crab salad on the pier. In, and I kept saying, you know, Dimitri, your, your gig is at 2, and it's, it's 1.30. We should be heading over. And he'd go, oh, no, 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 they'll wait, they'll wait. 2 o'clock, it's like, Dimitri, we really have to go. It's like, oh, no, they'll wait. Well, in Russia, they'll wait for they'll wait until you show up. But when he got to the classroom where he was supposed to lecture at like three, there was nobody there. Yeah. And he goes, "Well, where are they? Where is everyone?" I said, "Dimitri, they came and they left." He was just outraged. It was wow. hilarious. So uh, we all went into San Francisco for his gig there, and. Uh, there were half of the people there were in the I think in the Russian department at Berkeley oh, okay. um, or in various schools anyway pe everybody knew who this guy was yeah. and there was a romantic intrigue uh, going on that everybody there was privy to uh, it had to be explained to me but why every you know it was just like buzz 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 that that he had the one of the translators was there with her husband, uh, who was the videographer, uh, who had done a film about the poets of St. Petersburg that Golienko was in. And he had written a poem to her, like she was his lover before he, she dumped him to go with this videographer. But he, she was still his translator. So he would read in Russian and then make her, and then she would translate and read the, you know, read the English version, but he picked a poem that was about her and their relationship, and he read it in Russian, and you heard like all the Ru the people in the know, the Russians were like, buzz, 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 you could hear oh. them. And then she translated it, and it was like about his complaints about her. 
I mean, so yes, I remember the evening distinctly. It was so much fun because Russians, when the Russian poet poetry, and this is in my book, in especially in Chimes of the Lost Cathedral, but also in the Revolution of Marina M, poets in and probably in America too, but in Russia. Poets arrive in constellations, they're born in constellations like stars, they're born together. And these groups continue even as people break up and get divorced and change partners, they still are in the same milieu. They don't, it's not like, you know, dating on the internet where you never see them again. You, they just re, reconstellate. And um, that's very much a part of the Marina Makarova, the protagonist of my last two books, is a poet. And so we get to see the world of the poets. That's one of the big themes of the books, the world of the poets in Russia at the time of the revolution. And I was seeing it live at, in San Francisco that night. It was amazing. They were still all thick as thieves, even though, even with all this drama going on. It was amazing. I just thought, I mean, I felt it was like utterly romantic just listening to him in Russian and listening to her translate it. I didn't know there was all this depth to it. It only took 10 years for me to find out. <laughs> we'll be back with more from Janet Fitch, the author of Chimes of a Lost Cathedral in a Moment. Believable is a new podcast from Narratively about how stories define who we are. In each episode, they dive into a personal eye-opening story where narratives conflict and different perspectives about the truth collide. Believable explores the gray area between extraordinary experience and objective truth. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Narratively at narratively.com. And now we're back with author Janet Fitch. <laughs> the, um, and I remember you were, you were researching um, the, uh, the revolution of Maria M., like, Many years ago, you were like, "I'm off to, I'm off to St. Petersburg. I'm, 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 I'm researching for this book." How, how much, how much uh, back and forth between St. Petersburg and research did you do when you were going through the um, the process of coming up with your two novels that are out? Well, I had been a student in Russia in '77. Yeah. Um, do you speak Russian? Okay. Um, a little bit. I love the way you say that. <laughs> <laughs> I took Russian in high school. I took Russian in college. Um, I can order a meal. I can talk to a cab driver, you know, yeah. but I can't have deep existential conversations. Yeah. Um, and who wants to? I do. <laughs> I went, uh, I... So I studied, I was in Leningrad, which was, you know, Petersburg before uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, in, and then I went back 30 years later in 2007 to do research for this book. And then the translator who uh, was the one who called me up to help with Golyenko, um, she had found out about a fellowship to St. Petersburg that she didn't qualify for because she was a, a graduate student. It was designed for um, American cultural workers who are working on a project about St. Petersburg for a mass audience. And it's like, does it, is my name on that thing or yeah. what? Yeah. So I applied for it and got it and went back in 2009, which is when I we must have had our conversations, um, and as, the, as, as a guest of this foundation that put me in touch with these institutions that I wanted to talk to people inside and just all red carpet, open door. I got so much research done on that trip. So I went twice for Marina M. And then I was a student there um, back in the day. Yeah. What was what was the di when when you were a student? This was when they were kind of behind the Iron Curtain. There was a lot. Was there? there it was like, what was the culture like? Um, like, was it a culture shock to see Leningrad slash St. Petersburg in a completely different situation? Oh my God! When I was there as a student, 
in, you know, when you learn about a country through its literature and through its history, you have a certain picture. And then you arrive and it's like, oh, you know, let's like toss out. Well, it's not, you don't toss it out, but you see that it's just, a, it's just one color or a few colors of the full range of, of possibilities. Uh, first of all, I had not pictured Leningrad, St. Petersburg, as an Italianate, like a suite of buildings, all built at the same time, classical, you know, with pilasters and, and faces and balconies and all, everything about five stories high, canals. It just did not, I mean, I was, I was expecting Moscow, which is the, the domes and old. It's not that old a city. It's about three, 300 years old. Built all at once. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But to my Western eye, I'm like, why don't they paint these buildings? It's Soviet, you know, the mid-late Soviet era. But it's like, why don't they paint these buildings? You know, it's all so crumbling and falling apart. It's like having no idea really what I was looking at. And um, it was good for my book because I had lived now. I got a chance to see what life in the collective society is like. What what it's like to have to stand in line for who knows what. You see the line, you get in it, and then you ask, what are they selling? Yeah. Um, cucumbers, okay, and then you buy cucumbers. Maybe you don't need cucumbers, but somebody you know well, yeah. or shoes. Maybe you don't, you don't need shoes, but they're selling shoes, and you buy them even if they don't have the right sizes. Somebody you know will need those shoes, wow. so you just buy them. Yeah. Um, so there was no entertainment there was you know there was no bars cafes restaurants supermarket any of that stuff you just you know at night you know you gather in somebody's apartment around the table and somebody would have a bottle of vodka and you have cigarettes and somebody has a guitar and you'd argue about literature and that's it that's that's it. So I could very clearly picture my the lives of my poets and how they actually lived uh, in a collective apartment because I was in a dorm. I had a kind of a good idea of what that would have been like. Um, so it that helped me a lot. But I'll tell you, I went back in 2007, 30 years later, and if they hadn't been speaking Russian, I would not have recognized it. There were supermarkets cafes there was fashion yeah. Russian Vogue you know girls with you know thigh-high um, blue suede boots and then you know with high heels in the dead of winter um, just it was it was capitalist it was like Europe yeah. so it was that was a very interesting contrast and going back in 2009 was just heaven itself to be on that fellowship and really walking through the doors and seeing it from the inside and learned so much. When you talk about the time with no cafes and no restaurants and how they gathered in apartments, that sounds so sexy to me because that feels like, it feels like there was such an intent to let, here's how we're going to gather. And they did it anyway. I, it's, I, don't, know if, I don't know if it feels that way when you go back and you're like, oh, relief, we can go to a cafe. But I, but just the, come come to my place, I got, we got guitars and vodka, and we're gonna talk. I, that's the, well, that's how the Russians lived. And yeah. I think that the capitalist era, entertainment, all that is eroding that aspect of, of Russian life a bit, yeah. which is sad. But Russians are very, you know, they'll, they wanna talk about the big issues. They don't wanna, you know, I miss, I will miss if they get into what we do and talk about our phones and our latest app and right. what we saw on TV, I will be disappointed. And I, I can see it, ha you know, I'm sure it's happening. Yeah. But when you don't have that, literature becomes really important. Yeah. And, you know, and long talks. I, I gave a, a talk when I was in, when I was in, Russia in 
2009 in Petersburg. They have a 24-hour bookstore uh, called Book Vayed, and I had had a book, White Oleander, was translated into Russian. So I was invited to do a signing uh, at Book Vayed, and um, I had a translator who one of the poets not Galienko, but one of the other ones, Skidan, who kept saying, whose English is very good, saying, she's not translating what you're saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he kept interrupting. But um, I swear one of the questions from the audience was, what is the meaning of life? You don't get asked that at an American book signing. You know, you get asked, how do you get an agent? Or how did you get your the idea for the book? But there it was like, what is the, they expect their writers to really have insight into human life. And I think that if our, that, that we should be held to that standard as well. I would love that question because that's something I'm thinking about all the time. I, so that, I, I think that's, I, I, I would, I can have a 30 minute conversation in front of a room and still, I, I'm like, I still have no idea, but let's discuss this. I had I was moderating a panel recently, and I kind of threw the panelists for a loop by asking fate or free will, uh-huh. <laughs> and they just it's like that's not the kind of question you're supposed to ask, uh, you know, people who are yeah. promoting a book. But it's like it's more than one shouldn't just be promoting a book, right. you know. Right. One should be having, um, you know, opening up an, intele- an intellectual space. Yeah. You know, where we should very much be thinking about questions like this and talking and not just promote, promote, promote. Right. The sound bites. I mean, I can't even, you know, I used to love watching, when I was a kid, I loved watching Carson and then Letterman after. I can't even watch these shows anymore because even when they're doing the interviews, it's just such a canned response. You know, there's a publicist behind the scene going, not that answer, the other answer. It's... What's amazing, I used to be um, the managing editor of American Film Magazine, and I did interviews with people, and I was amazed how um, people who had probably answered a billion questions, uh, you know, famous actors and stuff, if you asked them a question they'd never heard before, or a bigger question, they would just love you. They would love you to have a chance to step outside of answer one, two, and three and think about something else. And have an actual connection and conversation, not just a blur, not just a a soundbite. I used to be, before the American film thing, I used to be a party reporter for Us magazine. So I was one of those people who stood out in front, you know, excuse me, can I ask you a question? Janet Fitch with Us Magazine, can I ask you a few questions? And, uh, you know, they were always happy to do it. I I didn't even recognize people. I had to wait and watch the photographers. And when they started taking their picture, I'd go, who's that? Who's that? (laughs) Angelica Houston. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's on my list. Excuse me. Um, But I uh, remember... It was sort of embarrassing work. I kind of pretended I was someone else. I did it in persona. And I had one actor who, after I'd asked my question, turned around and said, what do you really do? And I was so, it was just like busted. (laughs) I said, actually, I write short stories and stuff. And he started interviewing me. It was like, uh, you know, so what do you write about? What's the, you know, what stories have been published? You know, had you had any luck? Blah, blah, blah. It was the last, the last party gig I did for Us Magazine because it was obviously not, like if he could pick me out that I didn't belong there. <laughs> I probably didn't belong there. And he knew that you, that you're, a, you, you're like actually into real conversations, not getting the, the quotes for the piece but the question must have alerted him that that this was not a I might work for us magazine but you know it was not long for this world and that was before white oleander was published uh first i worked for us and then i worked for american film and the the um 
Cinema Scene magazine that Ingrid in White Oleander works for. That's the art room of American Film Magazine. Oh, cool. Cinema Scene. Yeah. <laughs> Although I was I I was a typesetter and managing editor. I wasn't in the art room at that time. I had another question uh, regarding. Um, having White Oleander translated and doing the discussion uh, in 2009, what do you think your younger self in Leningrad would be thinking about the older you published and actually talking to people in that in the city? That you now you're an author. Here you are. I probably would have started laughing the moment I heard that, and I probably would have. Um, it probably would have taken me at least a week to stop laughing. Yeah. I would have just been so happy and amazed and yeah. delighted. Yeah. Uh, yeah, astonished. Yeah. It, it's I, sometimes I try to think back to like my you know my younger self and go, or I'll see a photo and I'm like and I'm like I see the look on my face I'm like hey kid you're gonna be all right you just just give it another twenty years. <laughs> And then, and but that's such an ambivalent feeling, you know. I remember when I was in that, uh, in that terrible writing class in college, um, with the three fiction writers. One of the other fiction writers said, you know, you can't really, you shouldn't write a novel till you're forty. He said, we were twenty-one, and my reaction was, you jerk. Do you know, 20 years, but White Oleander, I was 40 years old. <laughs> but but he said you shouldn't write a novel before then, but that that's not actually true. You should be working at writing a novel because it takes a long time to write a novel and you have to fail at it as well. Right, but I would have, I just thought that was the most depressing thing. Yet... And he was a really good writer, but I don't know that he continued doing it. Right. You know? I mean, sure, if you've been writing continuously for 20 years, you're going to be ahead of where you would have been if you just started. Yeah, and, um, and, and, when, and when you were 21 and becoming the novelist, did you think in your mind, oh, this is going to come out before I'm 30, watch this? Oh, God, it had to. Yeah. It had to, or I would... I would just kill myself, you know? And it took me 10 years to sell my first short story. Yeah, wow. Not a novel, just my first short story took me 10 years. It came out in a magazine, in a journal called Westward, which was the journal of of UCLA Extension. Yeah, yeah. I I hope they would start that up again because... That was the first, you know, it took 10 years. Did you teach at UCLA Extension? I did. I teach at UCLA Extension occasionally. I do, generally I do just like weekend workshops and stuff like that. It's it's so funny. It took 10 years to get the short story out. Then White Oleander comes out. Now, when, when White Oleander comes out, you don't know it's in the Oprah Book Club yet. You don't know what the what the buzz is. What was it like? What first off, what was it like just getting published and then not knowing anything after, not thinking into the future? Well, I had a, a young adult novel that sold five years before White Oleander. That nothing happened, but I was just super excited to get something into print. Yeah. Uh, and is I, that available? We can. It is out, so out of print. I mean, a good used bookstore, uh, I could probably find it somewhere. Um, then five years later, uh, White Oleander came out. So I was just thrilled as hell to have a book that was convention that was published by a decent publisher, Little Brown, got some good reviews. I was just as thrilled as could possibly be. I just was so excited. Um, I was, you know, that would have been enough. Uh, and then. <laughs> and then, you know, I, the the Oprah thing happens. It's, I mean, that is just. I'm a person who always is. A, I'm not a lucky person. I'm someone for whom. I work X hard, I get X back. I work 
why hard, I get why back. You know, that's the way life has always been for me. I don't do contests, I don't get awards, I just work. So to have something come to me from the outside, just not through any effort of my own, but just out of the sheer blue, and, you know, for Oprah to have decided that she loved the book and wanted to promote it, it was just... It, it, it just knocked me for a loop. It, I had to change my whole philosophy of life. I had, to, I had to grow into the idea that miracles could happen, and they could happen to me. It was just a, it was shocking. It was shocking. So there was almost like a spiritual growth that happened because of that. Oh, yeah, and it's like you spend all your time for years, for 20 years, you spend uh, your time pushing against a wall, yeah. pushing, pushing, pushing against a wall, and then the wall falls down. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's kind of destabilizing. But because you've built a relationship with the wall and you've built an identity with this wall. That's right. That, that failure, yeah. rejection, failure was, was the common ground. And so I'm going to work despite this, despite this. But to have the door swing open and somebody like Oprah say, welcome in. It's just like, wow. And people start treating you different. You know, family members who would just talk right over you or interrupt you or suddenly are listening to what you're saying. And part of you is like, you know, you son of a bitch. You wouldn't have talked to me before, but now I'm okay. And then you figure, you have to just have to decide, are you going to walk around with this enormous chip on your shoulder as a result of such good fortune, or are you just going to let that go and say, this is where I'm at now, suddenly Uncle So-and-so cares what I think, it's pretty funny, and just, you know, it's a, it just becomes a little private joke. You know, um, did it produce like any other things that you weren't expected, like anxiety, depression, or anything like that? Where when you're hit with something that I mean, that I'm saying because this is my personal experience. When great things happen to me, I freak out because that my anxiety goes way up because my body's going, no, what is this? This is a flight or fight flight situation. I, you know, it's. It, you have to grow big enough to hold something good and really allow it in. It's like people who can't take compliments. You know, you say, wow, you know, you're looking really great today. And they go, oh, oh, you know, blah, 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 you know, not really. Oh, things are, you know, whereas you, when you, you, you open up a space inside where there can be good things, then you can go, thank you. And learning to be, learning to say thank you, you know, the universe just gave you this completely undeserved or unexpected gift, you know, to not be afraid of it and open up and go, yeah, why not? But for me, I got to say that having experience with psychedelic drugs was helpful because it's like, of course I'm talking to Abe Lincoln and a talking horse, you know, of course, I, you know, maintain, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've been here before, but on a different level. That's right. You know, so I had a bit of experience dealing with something that was just unbelievable. But I had to resort to that. Um, yeah, it was pretty incredible. And um, then what happens is, you know, it goes to your head and you become obnoxious and you try to do something that it's going to be harder even than than the last one and then you totally make a mess of it so you can bring on that depression that is so familiar and then you find a a way back to a middle zone yeah Yeah. i think we need like therapists who specialize in people who have maybe they're out there i just need to find them but specialize in helping people through the process of um, accepting the um, the greatness, I I don't know what I'm talking about. I just like people who 
get in a relationship with the man or woman of their dreams and then they screw it up because they absolutely just can't can't they don't have room inside of themselves to accept good fortune and to take care of it and to find a good place psychologically for it you know we have to learn if we somebody who has not had a lot of good fortune has to learn how to open up space for good fortune and it's interesting about the accepting of compliments because I remember growing up where if someone complimented you, you I would always say, oh, it's only by Jehovah's will, it's only this. And then later as I was leaving, I, you know, um, and people would say, oh, that was really good. And I'd be like, I would talk myself down. And I learned don't do that because you're doing a disservice to the person that's also complimenting you. You're throwing, you're, you're, you're throwing away their gift and you shouldn't do that. It's- and what it is is the evil eye. It's fear of the evil eye that if you open up and, you know, go, thank you, like that was really nice, then you're going to be struck down. It's going to be taken away. You know, in in Russia, you don't, people, if somebody compliments your baby, and this is in Marina, uh, in Chimes of Las Cathedral, if somebody compliments your baby, you've got to say, oh, this runt or this stupid, oh, he's such a clumsy idiot, because... The evil eye will know if you if you go, yeah, he is, isn't he? He's pretty great. You know, then the evil eye will harm your child. So you have to, you have to, oh, this little runt, oh, what a, what a fathead. You know, if you ever read Gary Steingart's Little Failure, his father called him, I think, snotty. He had uh, allergies. His father called him snotty. Yeah. <laughs> That's very Russian. That's funny. <laughs> hey, um, yeah, it's so it's so much fun to deal. I mean, you've had so much experience dealing, uh, working with this culture, and just having an obs- observation of it from a point of view from us, but at the same time bringing us into the culture. It's it's just fascinating that even though we have the internet now and everyone's like, oh, I could find anything I want. No, you can't. You don't know what St. Petersburg smells like and how these people talk and what. Right. And I I was very lucky. Uh, you know, you, you do have to go back and put yourself in the mindset of a character as they're being, as they're developing their personality as a child, as a young person. Like, culture's are different um, you can't extrapolate from America in 2019 to Russia in 1916 um, I was very fortunate to work with a translator um, when I started like the first half say of Marina M uh, when she's still living at home uh, to get like what is a fam- What was an upper bourgeois kind of intelligentsia family like? How would they have seen a 16-year-old girl or 17-year-old girl? You know, I had. He said they would perceive her as a, as an adult at that age. You married at 18. You know, you weren't. It, well, you weren't like go to your room. There's not there. It's too late for that. You were treated as a woman. You were, uh, you know. I so I completely got. I got some things. Um, I won't say I got them wrong, but preliminary um, versions weren't adequate. I had to go back and and straighten it out. And what a what a, a monumental undertaking to go back to that time period. And just create a, create the characters. What what was it like? Do you, were you doing the research first? Did you have a character in mind first, or um, were they kind of together as you're just pulling pulling all this pulling it all together? Because I, I when I'm reading it, I'm like, wow, this must have been so much fun to research. And I, at the same time, it's probably like, oh, this must have been hell to research. Well, I've you know I'm a, I had my background in history, yeah. so. There's something in history we call research rapture. And that is just like when you follow the research and one thing leads to another. I mean, most people have experienced it, you know, that they go online at 7 p.m. to research, you know, uh, Apple Brown Betty. 
recipe and they end up at three in the morning in Madagascar, you know, with the lemurs. It's like, how did that happen? You have to be very careful when you're doing research. I, I have to be very careful to stay very close to the story that I'm writing and not follow these rabbits into the brush. Um, so what I do is I start writing and then I research what I am writing. I mean, I had, I definitely had the period. I knew the, you know, roughly what happened with the revolution. I did some of that research, but most of the research I did while I was writing it. So I, exactly where I was in the book that I was writing, what was going on in um, literature, what was going on in politics, what was going on in, um, like, what would a girl of 17, an intellectual girl who was a poet, who would her heroes be? What would she have read? Who was her family? Like, I have a family uh, in Marina M that was uh, lightly based on Nabokov's family. So um, it was Anglophile. They spoke three languages at home, but English, I mean, Marina's father, everything English is the thing to do and be. So what would she have read as a child in that family versus would be different than, say, Marina Tsvetaeva, the poet, uh, was raised in a German-speaking Russian family in Moscow. So she's very strong on the Germans, whereas uh, Marina would have read Dickens and would have read... Um, you know, been much stronger in the uh, in the English in English literature. Yeah, which was probably very subversive at that time to read Dickens. Uh, no, it was in the intellectual in 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 the intellectual circles. They they were so so literate. We could hardly imagine how literate the Russian intelligentsia was at that time. Most of them got work as translators after the revolution, either in Russia or in the West. And they were trilingual. They, they had beautiful French, they had beautiful German, they had beautiful English. Um, and world, they were part of world culture in a way that we can only dream. I, that's beautiful. Okay, now paint it black the film. <laughs> Smash cut. Um, I was so excited to see it. Uh, I think it was at LACMA, the screen, the screening there. And uh, when Amber uh, Timberland, is that the, uh, Timberland, is that how you Timberland. Yeah, yeah. When she was talking. And I wanted you to talk so bad, too, about the uh, film. But it was so much fun to see. At the screening, this is, this is how, uh, this is like, I'm sitting there going, I really live in L.A. now. After I get up to leave I was just like you know I, I was, the movie was so much fun I turn around Quentin Tarantino was sitting behind me the whole time <laughs> just like going and hello LA wow yeah um, the movie you know it's always such a compliment to have a movie made from your book and it's always it's always a thrill to see how what people will do with it and how they will do. You were involved in the making of your movie of yeah. Jesus. I still don't know if that was the right thing to do. Yeah, there is no right thing. That's one thing about being, you know, of a certain age is we learn that there is no such thing as the right thing. There's just what happens. Um, but it's it's so interesting to see what people choose to concentrate on, what they need to leave out, because a book is a big messy thing, and you have to focus on some aspect of it. Now, Amber Tamblin's film of Paint It Black, which is on Netflix, people can see it. Um, it's it's it concentrated on the relationship between. Um, the protagonist, Josie Tyrell, the little punk rock princess, and her boyfriend's mother. Um, and it, it, it the boy uh, who they both, you know, were crazy about, and it's his suicide, it's the aftermath of a suicide in punk rock LA. And But she chose to focus on the relationship between the two women, so instead of being a triangle, a three-handed book, it's just about those women. And I am, as a writer, I'm kind of a, um, I'm 
I'm kind of a sensual realist. Whereas Amber, because she grew up with her dad, Russ Tamblin, was Dr. Jacoby in Twin Peaks, she grew up watching David Lynch. And she has a really strong Lynchian element, which I call it's an expression expressionistic element in her in her vision. So we've gone from you know the lyrical realism of my the way I see the world to a more expressionistic, uh, hyper hyper real kind of surreal. Um, vision that Amber has. So it was a thrill. It was so exciting to see how somebody would interpret my book in a completely different way and really enjoyable. At what point did you get to see how they were going to interpret it? Did you get to see like the screenplay or did you see a rough cut? When, when did they let you into the process? Amber, this was a one-woman project. So it was just Amber uh, directed it. She co-wrote the script. She was the one who got the money, who did everything. So it was a one-person vision, and um, uh, they, she sent the she sent me the script, which I was afraid to read because it had been optioned before, and it was so horrible. I can't even begin to tell you how horrible it was. They had a punk rock girl saying things like, oh my God, it's like, oh, they didn't understand. Just because she was a teenage girl did not mean that she was a valley girl. You know, there's other LA girls. Um, whereas Amber really got it. Oh, it was wonderful. Um, but I was afraid to read the script. So I had my husband read it. And he, she, and he just said, oh, "Oh, yeah, she could, she could shoot this tomorrow." Um, and I'm like, "Phew!" So I read it. I, she, they let me come to the set wherever I wanted to come. They sent me the sides, which are the uh, pieces of uh, the scenes that they're going to shoot that day. They sent me. She sent me the sides, the location, so I could just walk on where whenever I wanted to go I could just go and visit yeah. so I would w work in the morning and then go and visit the set and watch them shoot so I saw everything it was as it was going but there wasn't a lot of input on my part because this is a singular vision when somebody has a singular vision they do not want outside input they just want support Yes. And, you know, they just want, you know, you, you can be part of the gang and walk on when you want. But, you know, I mean, she really didn't need anybody's input. It would have been distracting. Whereas on the Hollywood movie, the White Oleander movie, they were very open to my, uh, to my comments, which were given quietly behind the scenes to the producer or the director, never, you know, visibly. Right. Um, you have to be extremely tactful and understand that you sold the movie. You know, it's they're going to do what they're going to do. <laughs> but the Amber's thing was like walking into somebody's dream, and it was my dream too. Uh, but seen through someone else's eyes, it was very exciting. That's beautiful that she just lets you on set like that. It's just so rare. I, I mean, even when I went on set for Jesus Church the first day of shooting the. I found out the producer was trying to keep me offset. A, a PA was literally trying to close, keep the door closed and keep me off. And I knew Eric was completely wanted me on set. And I'm just like, how do I deal with this? And then it was so absurd because then Eric finally was like, yes, he needs to be on set. And everyone's like, oh, it's not the word we got from the producer. But um, yeah, I, it was weird. I had to fight my way to get on set while Eric was championing me to be on set. But it was... But at the same time, it's just funny because not a lot of authors of their books get to have that much access. Yeah, it was, I just knew, you know, I'd been in film school briefly, so I knew not to, where not to stand. I went, I always looked for the script supervisor who would be with, there with the script and the monitor, and I would always stand next to her because I knew that would be out of the line of, uh, out of the, but it was amazing to see her, to see a young woman on a film shoot 
telling like telling people what to do and having them go yeah 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 let's do it you know you know to see how she motivated people she was amazing she was amazing i you know she's become an author is she she's a poet she's become an author she's become an activist but i sure hope she directs more because they they would have fallen off a cliff they were so on it nobody was balking nobody was saying well in my experience young woman none of that none of that it's such a craft i just i when i was on set and i'd listen to eric give notes and i'd just be like oh my god because it's just such a different level because they're talking to an actor who's expressing your words but nothing you would ever say to them and and he's he has this other vision where it's just like I was like, well, I want to be a good director, but a good director knows exactly how to talk and where, not sit there and go, you say it like this next time. That's like the worst direction to do. I was in, I went to film school. I was yeah. going to be in a director. Okay. I was at the in the director's program at USC, yeah. Yeah. Um, at for 2.5 seconds, <laughs> discovering that. Um, my difficulty is that I wanted to be God of my own planet. And as a writer, you are. Right. You, you just imagine it. You are the director. You're the actors. You're the location scout. You're the, you do the lighting. You do everything. Um, and uh, film is all about cooperating. And I don't yeah. cooperate well. I, I just want it the way I want it. So I, I came to respect that. But that said, cinema definitely teaches us ways that you can tell a story and most interestingly about how um, how cutting editing um, is very informative for fiction writer um, what you don't need to show you know where a cut is just as good as another 20 pages um, there's a wonderful book that was point was somebody suggested I read recently that was Walter Murch's book on the art of editing called the uh, in the blink of an eye and I recommend it to all fiction writers um, because it's it's about pacing timing and you know we don't have to show somebody driving up to the house we just can open the door we can go from the office to you know opening the door and walking in you know you don't need to show the drive and the the traffic and all that unless it's unless it's serving the greater story and there's action happening um are i with the revolution of maria uh, marina m and crimes of a lost uh, cathedral are there uh is there is there a film talk regarding that or do do i get to see a movie janet i don't know i've you know, so far I'm I'm two for two, and uh, I think that um, if, if someone would, I think it, it it's probably more likely to be a a, a mini series or what they call a you know what do they call it a a, a limited run or limited series yeah something that would be amazing on uh, like for. Like eight, yeah, it would be amazing uh, for a miniseries. And some of those miniseries, I wish we can. I wish they would release them at the theater so we can watch the whole thing. I remember, like back in the day, Lars von Trier's uh, "The Kingdom" was an eight-episode TV show that we can only see in the United States on 35 millimeter. So we would wait for it to come in the late 90s, and then we would sit in the theater for four hours. We'd get a break, and then we'd come back and watch the last four hours. And it was the yeah. I love that. Phantom India was like that. The Louis Mall yeah. uh, was eight episodes for French television, yeah. and then they. But over here they showed it four hours, and then the yeah. next day you came back four hours. Yeah. I I definitely sat through that, and also um, uh, six scenes from a marriage. Bergman oh, yeah, yeah. had been a, a six one-hour television right. programs. That then became, um, you know, I don't think it's a six-hour movie. But I think you could, I, if I remember right, because I did see the six-hour, all of six, so I don't know how I saw it, but it was probably about ten years ago, because I was obsessed about, I was like, I need to see the original. I can't, uh, 
this 90 minutes is not six hours. You know? Right. Yeah, I'm super, you know, film. I love... Film is... Uh, when I was a kid, I used to... F both my parents worked, so I used to fake sick and stay home and watch movies and read books all day long. And I don't really differentiate that much between cinema and film it's all I mean uh, and literature it's all literature yeah. like good movies but I actually watch a lot of bad movies but I you know but you learn so like for instance Painted Black really was inspired by Bergman's persona and lots of Marina M I just kept watching Tarkovsky's um, The Mirror over and over there's something about the mirror the uh, the mix of elements there's always the four elements in uh, in Tarkovsky and it just there's certain scenes that just resonated with me so strongly that they inform Marina Janet thank you so much for being on the show it's fantastic to have you again thank you very much it's been a pleasure Janet Fitch on Drinks with Tony. Check out her latest novel, Chimes of a Lost Cathedral. Also, see her in person. Go to JanetFitchWrites.com slash events because she will be in cities around the states including Houston, Atlanta, Dallas, Prescott, Arizona, and more. If you're in Los Angeles on July 16th, definitely go to her book launch release party at Skylight Bookstore in Los Feliz. <laughs> How do we say that here? I don't know. All right. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. We'll be back next week with more authors, more talking, and way too much coffee. For those of you in the United States, have a great 4th of July. Hey, and for those of you around the world, have a great 4th of July. <laughs>